Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Wilderness Podcast. I appreciate all my listeners out there, and I encourage you to pause this episode if you're listening through the web browser and to go over to Apple iTunes and your uh, podcasting app, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and to search for Wilderness Podcasts and look for the green logo with the bear. By subscribing, you will make sure to not miss new episodes. You can also go back and listen to older episodes. And subscription is free of charge. If you're able to support this program financially, please go to wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. I rely on the generosity of my listeners who believe in my mission, and I'd like to thank all of my recent donors. Your funds really go a long way in helping to keep this program on the air. I have lots of expenses from hosting to travel and also audio equipment, so thank you so much. In this episode, I speak with George Werthner, wilderness activist and wildlands ecologist. George is a frequent guest of the program. He is a prolific writer and advocate for the wild. He has authored more than 38 books on public lands issues and conservation. We talk about predator hunting and the associated ecological and social fallout, wolf hunting exacerbating cattle grazing conflicts, the story of Aldo Leopold and the wolf as told in a Sand County almanac, changing the direction and tweaking the missions of state fish and wildlife agencies, Changing up the old boy network, predator management in our value systems. And then we pivot the conversation and we start talking about uh, conservation groups and the way that they operate. We talk about how to keep conservation groups' missions intact. The Center for Biological Diversity is a good example. Groups that have lost their way, like the Montana Wilderness Association, how to help ensure that groups stay on track and keep the passion, and also the problem with conservation collaboratives. I had a great chat with George. I always learn something new when we get together. So I hope you enjoy the episode and learn something new as well. Okay, we're rolling. George Werther, thanks again for joining me on the program. You bet. It's always good to have you. Thank you, Adam. So I had a great chat with David and Louisa, which uh, you heard their podcast, and you know, I've just been thinking a little bit more about hunting and predators ever since I interviewed them. A couple of things I wanted to just discuss with you a little bit is um, the idea of killing predators through sport hunting. And I, I made mention in the episode that I'm getting into big game hunting, and I wanted to just clarify something, uh, clarify a point that I, I have no interest in ever killing a predator. Cougars, bears, wolves, that sort of thing. I, I'm just interested in maybe getting an elk or a deer or an antelope, that, but, but I wanted to get your thoughts on, on predator uh, hunting and, you know, some of the ramifications of that. Yeah, well, um, I also oppose hunting of predators uh, for a host of reasons. One, in a, any population area, the number of predators that can be supported, of course, is much lower than the ungulates, ungulates being deer, elk, and moose, etc., that support the predators. And so they are rarer animals to begin with. Secondly, they have a, a disproportionate influence 
on the other uh, wildlife. They're sometimes called uh, keystone species or uh, trophic cascades, which is the idea that, <clears throat> say, wolves will um, affect the distribution, age, and um, the numbers of, say, elk. And, and that has other effects because then the, the elk shift their what habitat they're using, their, their numbers may be uh, different. And then, say, something like willows and aspen that the elk feed on will then have uh, a differential uh, effect. In, in case of a good example is in Yellowstone, where for a host of reasons, wolves only being one of them, um, the use of willows and aspen has been reduced by elk, and now you have more habitat for songbirds, you have more willows for beaver, uh, you have um, the beaver making dams on the rivers and streams, which helps the fisheries and reduces floods. So all those kinds of cascades uh, or changes because you have a top predator like the wolf. So that's, that's one reason why. Another reason why is that most people, not all, but most people that are hunting uh, predators, cougars, wolves, bears, coyotes, aren't eating them. And to me, then it gets a lot closer to just being a killer. Somebody who kills an, uh, a deer or an elk and consumes it for food, I find, from my point of view, that that's less objectionable than just out and out killing something for the sake of killing. And most people that are hunting those animals, wolves, cougars, and bears, uh, and they're doing it for two reasons. One is what we call trophy hunting, so they can stand behind the dead bear and grin at the camera and say, look at what I killed, and aren't I a big hotshot guy? Um, or they're killing them because they have uh, misinformation in the sense that they think that they will improve the elk population or the deer population or whatever. But in either case, they're both lousy, invalid reasons, in my view, for having a hunt. Now, people will eat black bear pretty frequently after killing it. I mean, that's, you know, a, it is a meat animal consumption for consumption, I suppose. But, you know, some of the, the short-term ramifications, like you went through some of the ecological issues, are, um, you know, you, you can't sex the animal and you could kill a mother with cubs. And um, that's unbelievably tragic and traumatizing to the young. Well, yes, because <clears throat> you could, you know, a bear, for example, could have a, up to four cubs. So you could kill the mother and wipe out five animals at that time. The other thing is, actually, you can change the demographics uh, by killing male bears. Um, <clears throat> this, is, this has also been shown in cougars and so forth, but... Basically, I'll use the cougar as an example because it's very well documented, but people think it happens in bears, too. And that is, um, <clears throat> you'll have a dominant male cougar who will have a very large territory with maybe anywhere from two to five females within that territorial range. And um, the, 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 the cat will, the dominant uh, tom, that's what they call a big male, uh, <clears throat> cougar will patrol that territory and kill any young male cougars he encounters. Well, that has several uh, consequences. One, um, male cougars, like male teenage boys, are more bold, less cautious, and less experienced 
in survival. All those factors make them much more likely to attack livestock and or people. So when you kill a, a male cougar, you may indirectly be making more conflict with humans. And then, of course, what happens is self-fulfilling. So then, say, a young cougar is now released and survives, but he can't hunt very well. So now he attacks a person, which is very rare. But now he's a quote-unquote problem animal. <clears throat> yeah, well, yeah, or just or he attacks somebody's dog or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and so then, then they, there's more calls for killing more cougars. And so it, you know, it self-perpetuates and makes it worse. There was a study done in Washington. Uh, it was pretty interesting. As the documented deaths of cougar, they, they decided they wanted to reduce cougars. And they knew how many roughly were there. And as the population declined due to hunting, the number of complaints and conflicts went up, not down, as was assumed would happen. So you disrupt that social behavior. And it's the same thing with bears, too. The dominant bear um, will, uh, you know, uh, protect an area that uh, he may have several females in. And and, and this, is, this gets to the conflict thing. By the time a bear gets to be the dominant bear or a cougar gets to be the dominant cougar, they've been around, the, the, uh, around for a while. And the fact that they're dominant and they're older means that they, for whatever reason, don't tend to uh, interact with humans very much. So that's exactly the animals you want there. And that's uh, uh, one of the problems with hunting bears or cougars or whatever is that they are um, uh, they they wind up disrupting that social ecology, and then there's another thing that's pretty interesting about it too that very few people bring up, but that um, when you have the, the the animals that are conflict, let's say a cougar that's patrolling the edge of a neighborhood and getting a dog now and again or something, and people are afraid it's going to get their kids at the bus stop. Those are not the animals that hunters get. Because they're hunting out away from the cities and farms, they're not hunting on usually on private land and so forth. So, the the very even if you thought that that was a solution, it's it's a very ineffective solution because you're not targeting the very animals that might be the issue, uh, or could be the issue, and um, so you're going out into the you know backcountry. And you're killing cougars that are 10 miles from a town. And they're not in the town because if there's that much distance, there's probably another cougar's territory in between, etc. So um, you wind up taking the very cougars that are not uh, causing an issue for most people. So that's another problem. It's, it's very um, uh, non-targeted kind of, of killing. And then if you change the age structure, that's another thing that happens. I'll use wolves in this case. Um, if you have... In intact wolf packs, you could have, I'll just use a number because it's easy to think about, 20 wolves, let's say. You could have 20 wolves, you could have one dominant pair, you could have a bunch of sub-dominants, uh, and then maybe, say, five pups. And so, and you add it all up and you got 20 wolves, okay? Um, or, you, and, 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 or you start hunting, and you can still have 20 wolves, but it could be two pairs, again, breeding, and each one of those pairs could have um, three pups, and so that's uh, four that's four packs with five wolves in each one. Now, instead of just five pups, you've got twelve pups between them. Tw pups eat more meat than adults, so now you've got um, much more pressure 
in the same number of animals uh, to, you know, whether it's killing elk and deer or livestock. And in fact, uh, you know, this is the irony. A lot of hunters want to kill the, the wolves and stuff, and they're actually making it worse for themselves because they're changing the age structure so that you have much more young of the year. And then the other part of that is young of the year and, and, and uh, you know, young wolves, with, just like any of the animals I mentioned, are less experienced. So they're more likely to, say, kill a, um, livestock. And because they're a small pack, they can't hold their territory very well either. And, and if you only have two uh, animals, and so you've got a female or a male, whoever it is, is staying back with the pups, usually the female, and the male goes out and kills an elk, and he brings some of the food back in his belly, and by the time he gets back, you know, the scavengers, the the other uh, black bear might have come along, or wolverine, or magpie, or coyote, and eaten up the whole elk. Now yeah. he's got to go out and kill another one. He's got all those young to provide for. Him. Right. But if you have this bigger pack, the 20, and you, so now you have the, say, the dominant females back with the, the pups back at the den, and the male or even the subdominants can bring meat back, and some can stay and guard the kill. So, so the hunting uh, departments manage for populations, not the demographics in a population. And they don't manage for social ecology. Those are two big problems with the way predators are managed. And so <clears throat> the basic thing is, is that they're creating more conflicts most of the time. And then they use the conflicts to justify having more hunting. And, uh, the, you know, of course, that makes the hunters happy. That makes the livestock producers yeah. happy. And yet it, it's a self-created uh, uh, conflicts in a lot of cases. And I'm sure there's a lot of hunters out there who would you know like to learn about this stuff and start thinking about these things and there's a lot to consider but um you know at least people can start thinking a little bit more and uh you know possibly even changing their mind on, on how they approach hunting and also the just the general public you know just to know that uh, there are different um hunters with different ethics out there just like any group so could you tell the the story about elder leopold shooting the wolf sure uh when elder leopold was young for those that don't know, Aldo Leopold uh, was a forest ranger in the southwest Arizona, New Mexico. He <clears throat> left the Forest Service eventually to become the first instructor uh, and start a program, the first program in the country in wildlife biology at the University of Wisconsin. And then he wrote a number of books, but his most famous is called Sand County Almanac. And it's all these vignettes and, and beautiful writing about uh, ethics and wildlife and, and, and contemplating about uh, wildlands. And Aldo Leopold, um, <clears throat> while he was working in Arizona, a young ranger, uh, came upon a wolf. And, and in those days, as he says, we never missed an opportunity to shoot a wolf because that was just what you did. And he uh, fired at the wolf and missed it a couple times but finally hit it. And uh, it crawled away, and they went down, and he got down just as the wolf was dying. He said he saw the fierce green light going out of its eyes. And from that day on, he said he realized that neither uh, the wolf or the mountain uh, appreciated the killing. Because what happens, then he goes and he says, when we got rid of all the predators, then the deer herd exploded, and the deer stripped the mountain of vegetation, then the soil eroded, and there was all these consequences of killing that wolf. And so the killing of the wolf and, and seeing it die was symbolic to him of our incorrect attitude towards just animals in general and the land, 
and the unintended consequences of our actions. So that's what that was about. It's a very good... And this title of the, the essay, by the way, is called Thinking Like a Mountain. And the idea being that, you know, the mountain has a longer-term view of things than us uh, humans. And from the mountain's perspective, you want some wolves around to kind of keep the deer in check. One thing we touched a little bit on with David and Louisa was state game management agencies and and what they're managing for, and that's to have as many animals on the landscape for hunters to kill. And there's a growing movement now for, uh, of course, the non-game animals, which we're you know starting to value more. I, I I hope as a society, maybe not as a you know as the management agencies might be doing so, but what would it take to really start to turn this around a bit, where uh, non-hunters and also non-game um, start to have a voice and can say that they want to see wildlife out there too, and that these animals aren't just for killing. Well, there have been things that have been tried <clears throat> to change the direction of the agencies. And I, I want to give a little bit of background on the agency people. Most biologists that I have met that work for fish and game agencies are pretty decent people that aren't just out there to try to kill everything. Uh, but they're working for a constituency that wants them to make it so that they can go out and kill everything. And and so there, a lot of them are kind of stuck and conflicted because they have to promote policies and uh, <clears throat> that they don't agree with. And it's tied to their funding, right? And it's tied to funding, and that is is that hunting licenses uh, and tags provide the bulk of fishing game agency funding. And that's an important thing to remember because I'm going to come back to it in a second. But um, so I have had... Um, uh, many encounters. Uh, for example, I had a, uh, in Montana, I don't know if I want to give too many details, but a, a wildlife biologist from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, I met on a trail one day. He says, you're George Worthner. I said, yeah. He says, oh. he said, I really agree with everything you write about predators. And he said, I don't think we should be hunting them at all. Um, and I've been doing research on uh, this particular animal, if I tell it, it might give away who it is. So, uh, But it, a predator for, for 18 years, and uh, I cannot justify any killing of them. Uh, but I'm not allowed to say that. And I'm not even allowed to publish anything of my findings. The department will not let me publish. And so that's, I think, representative of a lot of the biologists. They're, they, they only, You know, if you get a degree in wildlife biology... Your choices are pretty limited. You're going to work either for a fish and game department or you're going to work for the Forest Service or the BLM and maybe might possibly get a job for some, you know, private person really rich like Ted Turner or something like that. But then, you know, you might as well not even think about that because that's going to be one in a thousand jobs. So you're working for an agency and, um, and the fish and game agencies depend on funding mostly from people who are not that informed on ecology. They may know something about elk behavior or what the, where the deer are found or something like that. I don't want to say they don't know anything. I would say, on the whole, the average hunter probably knows a little bit more about wildlife than the average, you know, just it's person. What they can observe citizen. in the field or yeah. what they choose yeah, to Yeah, and they them. read a little bit, and, yeah. you know, they so they know something. But they're not nearly, they're not interested that much in the ecology or the sociology of the wildlife and so forth. So, except if it would enhance their ability to shoot one. So, 
Um, so that's who you have to work for. Uh, you know, a bunch of people. I could be. Uh, I don't want to be negative. I won't say something negative, but you know, uh, you know, people that are that are not really that interested in anything other than I want more deer and elk to kill. So that's the problem for the biologists. They're stuck, and um, and so what is the solution? Well, uh, there there are several things that have been tried around the country that are partial solutions. I don't think they're fully successful, but they might be in the right direction. One is is to broaden the funding base for these agencies. So, for example, in Missouri, they passed a law that allots a certain percentage of their state sales tax to the Fish and Wildlife Department, which they changed the name to Conservation Department or something like that, to sort of reflect a broader mission. And so they're able to hire uh, biologists to study songbirds or marmots or whatever, you know, snakes. I don't, you know, I don't know, but, but more than just deer. And, uh, and in Missouri, that'd be about all you'd be studying, rabbits, deer, and grouse maybe. So, you know, you broaden, you broaden it because you've got the conservation. And then that money also uh, in Missouri has funded visitor centers to educate the public in general about wildlife, to buy land for habitat, which is a really good thing. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it's basically everybody's funding it because when you go and buy, you know, a car or, you know, a tomahawk or whatever you're buying, part of that's going and funding the conservation department. Another example of that, um, uh, <clears throat> sort of has been done in Florida. Now, some of these things, I don't know if they're still in, in use, but I'll mention that things that have been done, at least in the past. In Florida, they had one of the things they realized, they got a rapidly growing population, and one of the negative impacts of that is more and more wildlife getting killed on highways and so forth. So they passed a law that says if you register your car in Florida, a portion of the registration goes to fund wildlife habitat acquisition as a compensation thing and to fund, you know, other kinds of biological studies. So that's another different kind of funding source. Um, it has been talked about. It has not ever been successful. But off and on, in the last three decades, there have been attempts to get Congress to pass the equivalent of what is the Pittman-Robinson Act. The Pittman-Robinson Act is another federal funding uh, way these state agencies get funding. Is There's a tax, and it's just built right into the cost of of whatever you're buying there, on anything related to fishing and hunting. So rifles, ammunition, fishing reels, and rods. So when you buy a, a, a box of bullets for $20, maybe, you know, the real cost of the bullets is only 18 and $2 goes to Pittman-Robinson. And then it gets distributed uh, throughout the, the country. And I'm not quite sure how they decide who gets how much and all that. But nevertheless, um, that has been a very effective way to provide alternative funding. But in that case, it's obviously being funded by the same people, you know, hunting and fishing. So they've talked about putting a similar tax on binoculars, sleeping bags, day packs, cross-country skis, you know, all the kinds of things that snowshoes that general recreationists uh, use binoculars like bird watchers spotting soaps and and so have all that equipment have a similar tax on it that would then be again divvied up to these wildlife agencies for the state and the thought is is actually if they could ever do it that would raise an incredible amount of money 
way more than the Pittman Robinson just on hunting stuff, way more than the sale of licenses and so forth. Uh, and and the irony is is that the few times that I know that that's been tried, some of the opposition has come from hunters and anglers. And the reason, I mean, they don't say this out loud. They have other reasons why they say they're opposed to it. But the reason is thought is that right now they have, you know, they, a stranglehold on these agencies. And if there was more funding from the rest of the citizens, then, you know, they'd have, they'd have a right. A they'd have a say. And they may say, we don't want bears shot in the spring because they've, they've got cubs. They might say, we don't want to see uh, exotic fish being dumped into rivers to the detriment of the native fish. We don't want to see, uh, you know, uh, baby deer being shot or whatever. You know, I mean, you don't know how it would manifest itself. But the point is, they're worried it might put some sidebars on the agencies and what they're doing. So there have been these different funding proposals out there. And uh, some have been enacted, like I said, the sales tax. Some, and, uh, and then there's the other is sometimes it just happens from the legislatures. Uh, California has been very progressive in general about wildlife. And uh, the legislature has, you know, sort of changed the direction in a lot of ways of the fishing game. Like, for example, you, you cannot hunt cougar in California. It, it, it's illegal. And the surprising thing is they have a lot less conflicts in California than states that allow hunting, like Oregon or Washington. And that's really a telling thing. This gets back to the social uh, impacts, because you can still kill a cougar. I mean, if a cougar was in the backyard of a schoolyard, they'd kill it. But but that doesn't happen very often, so most most of the cougars, are, you know, they just live out their lives there in California, unless they get hit by a car on freeway or something. But But anyway, they... They are not hunted, and and there have been other progressive things like that. California, I think, has um, made it illegal to trap bobcat. I, mean, I think that was a recent thing recently. But in a lot, a lot of ways, they're chipping away at the old boy uh, network that allowed these things to go on, and that has to do with the fact that California is so urban, and and there's a lot of people there, and they can, uh, and the legislature is made up of more legislators that are from urban areas than not. And so they have a differential impact. On the other hand, like in Montana, the legislature is mostly from rural areas, and uh, the uh, there's only uh, there's about eight eight pop counties in the state that have are actually growing, and the rest are shrinking out of 56 counties. But those those uh, counties that are growing, they still have a minor influence on the legislature which still is dominated by representatives from rural counties and the rural counties are representing their people when they want to have things like hunting of grizzly bears and so forth now unfortunately but that's the way a lot of those people think in those areas so it, you know so the the, ch the change in demographics can make a difference like i wrote a paper a long time ago before wolves were reintroduced um in uh, e even in yellowstone yeah, I wrote it before that. And um, right about that time. And I predicted that um, that Oregon would be a better place for wolves than Montana or Wyoming. And, and there were a number of reasons why I predicted that. But the, one of the reasons was, I said, because of the big urban population in Portland and Salem and Eugene, that would sort of act as a break on the worst traits of the rural areas. And it has turned out to be true. Um 
in Oregon, you know, uh, uh, wolves have to be documented to have killed cattle, you know, three or four times or something like that before they can be lethally taken. Uh, you know, in Montana, they don't even have to show that they kill a cow. They can shoot a wolf right now, you know, if they wander through their pasture with among the, the cattle. So that's the difference you get with the different kind of citizenry. And I think, really, as was alluded to by David and Louisa in their talk, a lot of the conflicts we have over things like managing predators is uh, is a value system, and it's... Um, and for the rural people, there is a, a sense of losing control, which, you know, you, you can't control the weather, for example, and you can have a hailstorm come and wreck your wheat crop, or, or you get a harsh winter and, you know, some of your cows freeze to death, and, or they eat poison plants, and so forth. But predators are something that you can, in theory, do something about. And so... Uh, the the predators are something that they feel like they have some control over. And the reason they resent things like Endangered Species Act and so forth is that's seen as some faraway government imposing its willpower over the local population who knows better about how to take care of the land. And the land is better if it has less predators. So, <laughs> so they... They resent that, and and it's a, uh, um, and I think what what uh, is happening in a lot of cases, it, it, so so wolves, for example, or grizzly bears come to represent this faraway federal government, which rural people in general don't like either, even though they get far more taxes and subsidies than urban people do. But we'll put that aside. The self-made, independent rural folks don't like the idea that the government has any say in telling them how to use the money that they get from the government. And so they resent that. You know, I, the analogy I make, it's like a teenager. I had teenagers where they say, hey, dad, can I have the keys to the car? And uh, by the way, is there gas in it? And um, and don't tell me when to come in, you know. And that's how a lot of rural people are, you know, like give me the money, uh, but don't tell me how to spend it and don't put any restrictions on me. So they're like... Spoiled teenagers, in my view. Um, if uh, the uh, so so anyway, so the, the the whole thing of predators comes to represent this bigger issue, then because if you look at the actual statistics, you know, like for example, cows and wolves, uh, the number of cattle that are killed annually by wolves is is pretty insignificant. Uh, I don't have any of the more recent figures in my head right now. But in some years, for example, I'll just make up a number that's probably close. You know, maybe 100 cows get killed in Montana by wolves and 1,000 cows get killed by domestic dogs. But we're not going out trying to shoot every dog. And 18,000 cows die from poison plants or something um, and so on. And so, you know, relative to all these other sources of mortality, the wolves are insignificant. But they, that's all they focus on. Uh, because it represents this bigger uh, issue of federal control and who gets to decide what. And and the other part of it, for a lot of rural, particularly the ranching community, they basically have had a huge amount of say, even more so than hunters, on wildlife management. And so all this chips away at their authority and what they're used to. So that's why, you know, for example, bison get shot coming out of Yellowstone Park, 
even though there's no documented and in theory to prevent the spread of brucellosis to cattle, a disease that causes abortion, abortions in uh, cattle, there's no documented cases of that ever happening. So why are we shooting the bison? We're shooting the bison because the ranchers can control bison and they want to be in control. They don't and, want them competing with their cows or well, that, their fences that, and their water lines, that stuff. That, yeah. that too, but that is not mm-hmm. why can't you have them on federal lands. The reason they don't is because it right now they still have the power to control. See, that's the thing. It's about control. It's about domination. But and, they would leave federal land and go on to private. Right? Maybe kind of eventually. Go wherever yeah, they want. Well, they might, uh, but there's a lot of federal land you could have them on before mm-hmm. they do that. And then the other part of it is, well, maybe you allow them to shoot them if they want when they get to private land, but they don't want them to even go on the federal land outside of Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And that's about, uh, I think, keeping the control. And they're not going to give it up voluntarily. Yeah, and, so many of these lower elevation drainages that... The Galton Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance is trying to protect our low lying and could support bison. Exactly, and 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 a lot of the livestock have been eliminated. Like out of West Yellowstone, you there's no cattle all the way down the Gallatin River to pass Big Sky. You know, until you get out to the Gallatin Valley, that's a lot of habitat there. You could have bison on, but they're not allowed to go there. Yeah. Taylor's Fork, all that country, mm-hmm. um, porcupine, buffalo horn, all good bison habitat that doesn't have bison. Hopefully that'll change someday. Yeah, someday, yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. Uh, let's talk about the environmental movement and the big greens, the collaboratives, and then grassroots organizations and, and how to how to stay, oh, what's the right word, on course, unaffected by, uh, by some of these forces that have overtaken the big greens and have, and have clearly altered their missions over time. So what, first off, what is, what is uh, meant by the term big green? And who falls underneath that? And um, who are some of the big greens? Okay. Uh, I I don't know if I've ever seen a definition. It's kind of like one of those words that people use and kind of like you, if you're in the environmental movement, you know what it means. It means the larger organizations that have bigger budgets and a uh, fairly large number of, of employees. An example of a really big green group would be like the Nature Conservancy, which I wouldn't even call green. But nevertheless, they would fit under that kind of category. They have, you know, chapters in, in, in every state, and they have many, many employees, and they have billions of dollars to spend. So that's the, sort of the top of the big green. And then, you know, others would be, um, you know, lesser budgets and employees, but still a lot would be like the World Wildlife Fund, uh, the National Wildlife Federation, the um, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the um, uh, uh, to a degree the Sierra Club. Um, the Sierra Club is a little different, but um, uh, the Wilderness Society. And so those are uh, groups that would be called the more uh, big green groups. And then you have the, I we call the medium green sized groups. You know they're. They tend to be more regional, but like the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, the Montana Wilderness Association, and, and other groups like that. That, you know, like the Montana Wilderness Association, I think, has like 25 employees now. And, um, you know, several three or four million dollar budget or whatever. So that puts it in the category. But there are some other groups that you, you can't just go on the numbers because, for example, um, the Center for Biodiversity, which I consider a very aggressive and wonderful group, 
I think they have about 80 employees anymore. So, uh, you know, they have, they have, you know, more employees than some of these other groups do, but they, their mission has remained the same and they have not been, um, diverted. And I, uh, maybe I can talk about why that is right now, because there's, I, th- I have a theory about that. For example, the Center for Biodiversity started out with three, uh, seasonal workers who were working on Mexican spotted owl surveys for the Forest Service in New Mexico. And, um, they became disgruntled, disgruntled with the Forest Service and and felt like they weren't really protecting Mexican spotted owls. So they, um, you know, they were seasonal. So in the off season, they started filing uh, appeals of timber sales, and they got the attention of a doctor, Robin Silver, uh, in Phoenix, who started giving them money to so they could survive you know because they're just seasonal workers and you know they got to have money somehow and so the they um and those people were Karan suckling peter galvin and i can't remember now who the third person was uh but in any event those guys are still running the organization and that's the point i wanted to make is that Karan and peter are still there and robin is still there so the leadership started out as this passionate group of activists and they still are a passionate group of activists. And uh, I remember another activist, Jasper Carlton. He's now dead, unfortunately. But I remember going to a talk he gave one time in Missoula, and um, he was—he had gotten—he started getting species listed, like the car- woodland caribou in northern Idaho and some other species. And and I I asked him. I said, Jasper, how do you how do you survive? And he said, um, well, the thing is, is if you do things, money comes to you. And it's kind of like they, they, the movie uh, Build It and They Will Come, you know, with Kevin Costner. It's that same sort of idea. And he said, you know, I just started doing this and people started giving me money so I could keep doing it. And that's kind of how the center was. Um, you know, Robin supported them initially, but now they have pretty good support from a lot of membership. And one of the things that is different about the center, again, use it compared to some of these other groups, is the center has has two f- strategies or two main th- prongs. They hire biologists and lawyers. And the biologists do the research on species, and the lawyers take them to court, the federal government. And, uh, and because they do their homework well with the biologists, and they have lawyers too that understand the Endangered Species Act and other federal laws really well, and have some knowledge of ecology as a result too of their association with all these biologists, they've been very effective at, um, changing a lot of federal policies, you know, whether it's, um, stopping, you know, timber sales and, and roading and all kinds of stuff, but also, just um, uh, maintaining the integrity of the uh, Endangered Species Act, even alone that. So, anyway, so that's the center. Now, contrast that with some of these other groups. Uh, these other groups that, uh, I'll use an example, the Montana Wilderness Association. Can we back up for a second yeah. real quick? So, these other groups, you know, the, these Montana Wilderness Association, Greater Yellowstone mm-hmm. Coalition, yeah. uh, Wilderness Society... Uh, nature conservancy all these other groups i mean everyone starts out as grassroots right right so they all they all sort of form along with the same concept um or you know they identify an issue it's grassroots they organize they come together and then what happens well that's what i was just going to get to Mm -hmm. okay so the montana wilderness association was very similar to 
the center. It was started by a bunch of activists who were very passionate about protecting wilderness. And they didn't have any funded people at first. Everything was volunteer. And they promoted the idea that we should have more wilderness in Montana and sought to get legislation that way. And in the early years, they also opposed anything that would harm the potential for new wilderness, like appealing timber sales, for example. And um, But what happened to the MWA over time, and this is what happens with a lot of groups. Okay, when you start a group like that, you... Eventually, you probably, you know, you might be just one person like Jasper Carlton, but if you get more than that, pretty soon you get a board of directors. And when you first start out, you, you only have to have three or four board members. So, you know, you tend to just get your buddies on there that, or other activists that maybe don't have the time to put, they know something about it. But what happens over time, as you go further along, you want to hire more people, then you want to have an office, you want to have a budget to go to Washington, D.C. or wherever, state capitals, and all that requires more money. So what happens? Well, you you start soliciting funding from foundations or from what are called rich donors, and both can have a big influence on the funding. And so if you're a small organization, you know, you might have a, a budget, you know, a, a of $100,000 a year, and somebody comes along, a rich donor or a foundation, says, I'll give you another 100000 So pretty soon, they're, like, controlling half of your budget. Well, you don't want to do anything to, to antagonize that funder, because now you've hired some people, and they're, you're dependent on that uh, funding. And... Um, and and then and then what happens? And and this is sort of a progression I've seen over and over again. So then you you have to have more money. Well, then you, it really helps to have on your board people who know people with money, both somebody with money who on the board can donate for one, or even if they don't have the money to donate, they know other people who can, and can help to raise money. So then you start getting your board being more based on raising money than on what the original issues were. And a lot of times, the people that are the money people, they're so busy, you know, if they're running a corporation or whatever, they really can't get to know the issue very well either. Um, and so, in the best of situations, they just give them money and let the staff do things. But that is not often the case, because a lot of the people that run corporations also think they should run everything. So then you get people on your board who now think they know more about the issue than the staff and the original passionate people. And then they also, because they they have, you know, sort of a stature and status to maintain with their buddies, they don't want to ragtail a bunch of guys and women, you know, on this organization that they're now promoting. They want somebody who's a little more sophisticated. So... They, uh, and particularly because boards at least do the hiring of the executive director. So you, you've got this organization that started with a passionate person who was really interested in this issue. And now for whatever reason, he either retires or she retires or takes another job or burns out. And so now you got to get a new ED. Well, so you got your board now that wants to raise money. They want to raise more money. They want to look good to rich people and to politicians. So now they're looking for an ED who they think is going to be more appealing 
to the funders, to the rich donors, and to the legislators. What about that mission statement that was crafted in the charter of the organization from way back? Yeah, they might still have that mission statement, but they think, they would argue that they're accomplishing the mission, furthering the mission that way. So then what happens? Okay, so now you have a board changes over time, and the people that are on the board change, and they hire an executive director now more for fundraising than necessarily what they know about the issue, or even if they're passionate about the issue. In other words, they're more interested in somebody who is a good business organization. And I'm not saying that that isn't a useful trait to have, because, you know, you can be a passionate and be lousy at knowing how to budget and and run personnel. So there are traits that are good to have in an executive director that go beyond that. But what happens over time is that you lose the passion. Because, okay, so you hire an executive director who isn't really passionate about the topic. He's just looking at his, you know, I like to work for a liberal group or something, or I, I like to quote environment. And so, you know, they get a job working for one of these organizations, but they don't really have a, you know, like, let's say it's a wilderness organization. They don't, they, you know, they like to go hiking or something like that, but they, they're not like reading Bob Marshall now, the Leopold and John Muir and all these other early guys or reading early history of wilderness designation or anything like that, because that's just not really what they're interested in. And this is 60, <clears throat> 70, 80 years ago that these guys were writing about right. this stuff. Right. And then the Wilderness Act comes along. And here we are in 2020, and we have roadless, very, very few roadless areas left. And groups like the Montana Wilderness Association and the Wilderness Society have proposed logging projects in our roadless areas. That's right. Is that correct? Yes, or, that is or did correct. I hit my head and no, they, forget what I ate for breakfast. No, they they are supporting. I don't know if they propose them, but they're supporting uh, logging in roadless areas. Yes, and they're not opposing it, which used to be the case. And part of it, I would attribute to the fact that most of the staff anymore at these organizations do not have a background in. They're not. They're not passionate activists. In other words. I, I go to a lot of meetings. I look at who writes letters to the editor and all that, and you don't see their names. You don't see them writing letters to the editor supporting wilderness. You don't see them showing up at hearings or, or meetings, unless they're paid to be there, of course. Uh, but they're not going there on their own volition. Um, and they're not uh, doing the background scholarship that's necessary. And so over time, so getting back to the ED, the ED doesn't doesn't have those skills. So he doesn't necessarily see it as important in anybody he hires. So over time, these organizations, the old guys that were there, disappear and get replaced by all these mediocre people. Uh, Another example is the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, which I worked for in the early years. And the people that worked there when I was there were people like Louisa Wilcox, uh, Dennis Glick, Todd Wilkinson, uh, Don Bachman. Um, you know, I can, uh, even Ken Barrett, who was the development director, was still very interested in, in wild places, you know. So you had people who, um, uh, who, who were really interested in protecting wildlands and had made, you know, they got into the environmental movement because of their passion. Um, never, you know, they considered lucky that somebody was willing to pay them to do something they were passionate about. And then over time, uh, I can't think of, when I look at the staff at the Greater Yellowstone Coalition today, I really can't think of hardly anybody who I would call a passionate activist. And yet they have like 25 people working there. 
So, um, so they should th- visit some of these roadless places and maybe camp out for a week and just uh, you know try it out a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm I'm sure they get outside and everything. But they like, do. But but try to form that deep connection and face the facts that these places are going to be logged and roaded and will disappear forever just because just because of an unwillingness to act in these dire times. I mean, we are we are running up against the the end of of our opportunities here. It's now or never. You're absolutely correct. However. Um... You know, I, I, I won't mention names in this case, but one executive director for one of the organizations in the Northern Rockies told me that logging isn't an issue anymore. And I thought that was a very uh, naive statement for several reasons. One, there has been so much logging in the past that any more logging is detrimental. So you can't just say, oh, well, they're, they're not, you know, they used to log, you know, 200,000 acres a year or whatever it was, and now they're only logging 50,000 acres. So it's, what's the big deal? Well, it's because they did 200,000 acres for, for 40 years. That is a big deal, even to have 50,000 more acres or whatever the number might be. So that was an ignorant statement. Another, uh, person who shall name, remain nameless, uh, was arguing that recreational things like mountain biking wasn't really having an impact on grizzly bears because grizzly bear numbers are going up. So how can you argue that? And and it, to me, it's shocking to hear that from a major environmental group, a leader in the major environmental group, to say something like that. Because they're, as if you talk to David or something, they tell you that the population may not be growing that much. It's just that they're spreading out because of food resources and needs. So, to, to, but that's the argument that you hear from the extraction industry. And to hear the arguments of the extraction industry said by environmental groups that are supposed to be watchdogs is disheartening. It's the same with logging. Um, uh, you know, the Forest Service is using these excuses like forest health to log, you know, as as you know, like you said, uh, you haven't heard of many flogging projects happening in the forest in a long time. But it's all—it's right. all under forest health. It's all under forest health. And think about this: you know, um, the forests have evolved with bark beetles and drought and wildfires and all that, but they've never evolved with chainsaws. I'm sorry, um, <laughs> that's a new influence, and to um, to justify that as the cure. Uh, for problems, which, of course, the problems are only seen as a problem if you're interested in timber production, which is the unspoken assumption that should be challenged, but these groups don't challenge anymore. In fact, they often, uh, because of the collaborative, we'll get to that, because they're involved in these collaborations, they're more interested in getting along with the other members of the collaborative uh, than what they're supposed to be watchdogging and standing up for. Uh, over and over again, I see letters or articles by members of these groups who are in collaboration saying, well, I could sit down with the, you know, the head of the mill, the owner of the mill and have a beer as if that was a, uh, that was the main goal of yeah, being in a collaboration. It's willing to sit down with you because you're ready to give them a bunch of timberlands. Well, that, and but I, I can sit down with the mill owner too, but it doesn't mean I'm going to give away the, the, the wildlands. So, but to, to a lot of these people in the collaborative, that's the most important thing is getting along and setting up and having good relationships with the other memberships of the collaborative. The problem with collaboratives, and there's a whole lot, I'll just go into them real quick, but one is they start out with certain assumptions, because uh, I've been members of collaboratives, you know, so I get in the collaborative and they say, well, okay, so the question is, is where we're going to log and how much? 
And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I, I think we should talk about, should we be logging in the first place? Well, that's off the table because we've already decided we're going to log. So, you know, if you, if you want to talk about, should we be logging, this is not appropriate collaborative for you. Well, of course, that's the so. Or another one I was in was about grazing. And it was like, the starting assumption was there's going to be grazing. And uh, instead of saying, well, maybe there shouldn't be grazing. Let's talk about that first or maybe not grazing nearly as much. And, and uh, so you can't, so you have the starting assumption. So that, that right away picks for certain people. And then um, in general, the, uh, uh, the uh, even if you are in a collaborative and let's say you had an environmental protective bent, you're only one voice of 20 or 30 people. And uh, so when I've gone to collaborative and I want to raise an issue, I hear, you know, like every other statement, practically, I want to challenge because I think the assumptions are wrong. But I'm in a group of 25 people there and we're in a four hour meeting. I can't dominate the meeting. That's the way it's seen. It's not fair. Why should I have 15 minutes of the four hours? And so I'm given, you know, maybe I can make one or two comments in a four hour meeting. And everybody else has the same mindset, comes from the same set of assumptions, all of which I say are wrong or, 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 or misleading assumptions. And because they all agree, it, it just, you know, that's the way things go. And uh, another problem with collaboratives, too, is that um, there's been a lot of funding from foundations paying these groups to be involved in collaboratives. So you're the ED, and you can... You know, how, how, you know, especially if you're the ED and you're not a passionate person, you're ED because it's a job. Well, you want to get to the next job. And the way you get to the next job is having a successful track record raising money at this job. So that's how you get, you know, you step up the ladder. You know, maybe you start at the Montana Wilderness Association. I'll just make that up as an example. And, you know, in, if you get, if you do a real good job there, maybe you can get a job with uh, a national group like the National Wildlife Federation that'll pay you more. So let's look at the roster of that collaborative, right? So you've got, you know, let's say recreation and wilderness, the Wilderness yeah. Society, yeah. or, you know, just kind of go down the list. But... You know, the, the way they're operating, again, we'll get back to the Big Greens a little bit. And I don't want to disparage the Big Greens entirely. You know, they still do good work in some places. But um, a lot of what they do is really, it's counterproductive and it just goes against their mission. And it's it's reprehensible. Um, for instance, the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, which protects all of the remaining roadless areas in the northern Rockies. I don't know what the threshold is on the acreage. Do you know? Do it's you about know uh, 23 million acres. Okay, so, so here's this bill to protect the last remaining roadless lands in the northern Rockies and turn it, you know, to, and designate them as wilderness. Well, wouldn't you think the Wilderness Society would want that? They do not. Right, and they actually speak badly. Uh, again, did I hit my head this morning? No, they uh, all these bigger groups here are opposed to the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act because they have determined in their own mind that it can't be successful. But that's part of the problem. It's like because none of these groups are putting their um, effort behind it, yeah, it won't be successful. You're not going to get just one group to get something like the Alliance for the Wild Rockies that's just the main sponsor of it to be successful you need to have the manpower and the woman power of all these other organizations all in the same direction supporting that and because they don't support it well they, they're self-fulfilling yeah what well, would Bob Marshall and Aldo Leopold and Elias Murray want what would they want oh they would be the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection that's the irony is that 
the people that started a lot of these organizations, like the Wilderness Society, was Bob Marshall, Aldo Leopold, Lois Marion, Harvey Broom, and so forth, were all on that. Sigurd Olson. Um, I think these guys are rolling over in their graves, seeing how their organization has capitulated. Um, they were, but see, that's the difference. Every one of them, by the way, has like advanced degrees in ecology or biology or something for one thing, which you don't see hardly anybody having in these groups anymore. And, um, and they were, they, they were first and foremost wilderness explorers, advocates, and so forth, and, and activists who happened to get together to form this organization. So they, um, they, you know, they, 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 they did things that were just, any any one of the uh, those early starters, Bob Marshall, Aldo Leopold, Olus Mayer, I can go on, have done more wilderness travel and exploration than probably the whole staff of the Wilderness Society in, say, Montana put together. Um, so the um, their their personal experiences were very broad and and gave them that passion that uh, for for trying to protect wild places. And I just don't see that in a lot of the staff of these organizations, and they've lost that passion, and they've they often also, in my experience, have little interest in understanding ecological principles either, even though they always talk about how they're doing science and they use science, but they don't use science. They 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 just have a superficial understanding, and. Um, and they're not driven by the science either, which supports protecting more wildlands, of course. And uh, if they did their scholarship, they would understand how things like restoration logging, as it's called, is really degrading forest ecosystems. If they did their scholarship, they would understand that livestock grazing has many, many multiple impacts on wildlife soils and water and so forth. It's impossible to run livestock, in my view, without damaging those uh, yeah. Attributes. I'm sure most of these folks are familiar with at least some of the science, but it, it goes back to that going along to get along sort of thing, right? Well, no, I don't even think they're familiar with some of the science, frankly, really? in my experience. No, um, they, you know, I mean, maybe they took biology in college, but even a lot of them didn't even do that. You know, they're political science major, journalism major, whatever. And it doesn't mean you can't learn that, but that gets, again, you learn it if you're passionate about it. But if you're not passionate, you're going to go through the trouble of, of trying to learn that stuff. And um, so without the passion, it, you know, you just are there to make a deal. So, and, they, so they fall into the collaboration mindset, and then they form these collaboratives, which are often um, encouraged or if not mandated by their funders. And then what is lost in this process? Wildlands. That's what's lost. Wildlife habitat, wildlands, the um, biodiversity are all suffering because of the compromises that they're willing to make up front. That's the problem. You know, as David Brower said, another one good person, um, I'm just paraphrasing, but uh, <clears throat> he argued that you he wanted to be the last person standing in the room that made a compromise. And he also argued that uh, something to the effect that um, many people are willing to compromise way too soon and give up too much good wilderness. And that's what these collaborators do. They they get in the mindset that they have to accommodate all these other users. And they, they don't understand that their job is environmental watchdog. That's what their job is. Their job is not to help the timber industry find timber to log. Their job is not to help the livestock industry graze public lands. Their job is to protect 
the public interest, and none of those things. And the public them. thinks they're doing it. That's the bad thing. Yes, the public thinks they're doing it, and a lot of these guys are living off of their old um, stature, you might say, like the Wilderness Society. You know, its original founders were passionate, were biologically informed people, who were uh, very effective spokespersons for wildlands, and. So if you know something about the Wilderness Society 50 years ago, you still think they're that way. Well, they're not. So groups today who are smaller or groups who have gotten larger, maybe like the Center for Biological Diversity, who have managed to maintain their mission um, in the face of, of growing and expanding budgets and reach, etc. So how uh, am I hearing something? Rain. I'm hearing rain. Mm -hmm. What are the lessons to learn when growing? What are the pitfalls, and how do you grow a, a grassroots group to to flourish and, and to to maintain their their mission? Well, I'll I'll tell a story. The first time I met Doug Tompkins, who for people that may not know him, he started the North Face and then a spree, and then he took his money from his spree and he bought lots of land in South America and has donated it as new national park, millions of acres of national parks. But the first time I met Doug was at his house in San Francisco with a bunch of other activists. And we formed and created the Wildlands Project to advocate for large, connected wildlands in North America. Originally, that was the goal. And one of the uh, things, stories he told at that first meeting, I thought was very insightful. He said he'd, he had seen lots of businesses started and that ultimately fail. And he said, you know, that... You, Almost all new businesses start because somebody has a great idea, whether it's a better mousetrap or how to Henry Ford, how to make cars more efficiently, whatever. And so they have some sort of creative idea that becomes a successful business. And what Doug said is over time, a lot of businesses, of course, the guys that are good at the creative end of thinking aren't necessarily good at business. And then as the business gets larger and gets more stockholders, which is like boards of directors and environmental groups, the stockholders want more, you know, profit. And they want uh, more um, typical business operations. They're not, they don't want to see, you know, touchy-feely or anything else going on that doesn't seem um, uh, regular. And so what they do is then they fire the guy who was the original creator or he or let's say he dies and retires. They don't replace him with another creative person. And so Doug said that the most successful businesses are those that recognize they need that creative, the creative edge. And people like that. And they tolerate them. Uh, they may hire uh, a penny pincher accountant type for their CEO, uh, CEO to you know run the basic operations, but they keep the other person on. If they don't, then they start to go downhill. And he he's the example of Apple computers. Who uh, the creative person there was Steve Jobs, and they threw him out. And then it started to go downhill, and they rehired him back, so to speak, and put him back in charge because they realized they need his creative thinking to keep Apple on the uh, up and up. And, and and Doug said the same thing applies to environmental groups. So that gets back to, like, the Center for Biodiversity. You still have the creative types, the passionate types running it. And that's why I think they're still successful. This Another group would be Wild Earth Guardians. The people that are there are some of the original 
with one exception, John Horning is the second person, but he's still, he came into that, you know, when it was a small group, and he's passionate, and he knows what he's doing. So uh, the the successful groups seem to be the ones that can keep that creative, passionate uh, side going. And, and then because they have, you still have those passionate people running them, they're still hiring their staff that are passionate activists. And they tolerate that, you know. A lot of the passionate type people, they're not easy to control. You have to be willing to say, well, I'm just going to let you go, you know, within some broad parameters and sidebars. And you just go out there and do it. And that's what some of the more successful corporations do, I understand. You know, I understand that uh, things like Amazon and some of these, uh, Google, they just say, you know, come in the office and, or not, maybe don't even come in the office. Just sit around and think. Come up with new ideas. And, you know, maybe only one in a hundred ideas or one in a thousand is a winner. But it's a real winner when it is. And so it's well worth to pay somebody to just sit around and daydream. Because they're the ones that come up with the new innovations. And and in a sense, the, the groups that I see that have remained effective are, are effective because they still have those activists leading the groups and are the EDs and the staff that's part of it. And the these other groups, what happens is they lose that um, passion and they're, you know, it's more of a job or it's a job that's... You see it as a job to make a stepping stone to something. You know, there was like somebody like, I'll just give you Karan Suckling. I don't think Karan Suckling has any goals to go anyplace beyond the Center for Biodiversity. He's not looking to get a job with the National Wildlife Federation or, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or anyplace else. Uh, you know, he's just going to be there until he, you know, retires or somebody gets rid of him. But he isn't looking to get another job. So he's not he's not trying to shape his career so that he can move on to the next higher level. Whereas a lot of the people that are getting hired to run these other organizations, uh, that's part of what they're at. They're, you know, it's a stepping stone to, you know, I'll run this organization and maybe some foundation will hire me to, to be their program person there or whatever. So, uh, or a bigger organization will hire me. And, or maybe they don't even stay in the environmental movement. You know, they, they show they can fundraise and now they go work at a university and fundraise for the university because it doesn't really matter who they're fundraising for. That, you know, it's just the job. And that's what's happened to a lot of these groups. Why does this work require passion? Well, it requires passion for, at least in the initial stages, because you almost never get any paid anything, so it's all your uh, volunteer. And um, you, <laughs> this is going to sound bad, but um, you're up against uh, giant forces, and anybody who didn't have passion would give up before they even got started. They'd say, this is crazy. I'm going to stop the Forest Service from logging, or I'm going to try to get the BLM to do something about livestock grazing. So the only way you can delude yourself into doing that is by having the passion to, to believe that, you know, you can make a difference. And um, And if you don't think you can make a difference, you won't survive. You know, you won't stay at it. And so I think the passion is very important to, you know, keep people going in the face of a lot of obstacles, a lot of institutional biases and, and you know, lack of money. Um, when I started Restore, a group that advocated National Park back in Maine, uh, the first two or maybe three years of Restore's uh, initial start, 
the two people that were running it at the time, Michael Callett and David Carl, they didn't get a paycheck. I think they got three thousand dollars in the first two years. You know, and they didn't they didn't have any other money, but they were passionate about it. You know, they 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 were gonna try to make this work. And um so uh, that's the kind of thing, you know, virtually no money, no health insurance and so how are you going to, you know, you're crazy to do this. And, um, you know, eventually David, unfortunately, had to take a job as a teacher and sort of drop out because he couldn't keep going and not making money. Um, but uh, so that's part of it. You know, you don't have much money to start with. You don't have, you know, the things that other people have, like retirement, health insurance, all those kinds of things. And um, uh, so that's the passion carries you along. And if you don't have the passion, you're not going to do it. So... That's why I say a lot of the people working at these groups, if they're not paid to attend a meeting or a conference or go to a, you know, a forest service, you know, show me show or whatever, they, they don't go. They don't go because they're not passionate about it. It's a job, you know. They like the outdoors, you know. They like the idea of being do good, you know, and that kind of stuff. But they're not. Uh, they're not gonna go out of their way and and that means also learning whereas people that are passionate I'm, i'll give you an example i'm not going to mention the name but there's a woman in new mexico who is trying to stop the forest service from doing a lot of thinning and so forth i don't know what she does for work but she's passionate and she's always asking me and other people who know a lot about fire and forest ecology for more information she wants to read more papers she wants she wants our opinion she wants to to learn as much as she can and she's and why does she do that? Because she's passionate about it. And um, I think she finally got hired by somebody down there uh, to, to help her, you know. And that's a, that's sort of like the Jasper Carlton thing that I said, where Jasper just started trying to get uh, the uh, caribou listed, and people started giving him money. And that's in in the old days in a lot of these groups, that's how you got hired, you know. In other words. Here's some activists are out there working on some issue, and um, you know whether it's the Sierra Club or the Wilderness Society or whoever it was, they said, "Well, you know, here's a guy that's or a woman that's doing this work. Let's see if we can't funnel some money to him, and they get hired as a part-time or full-time representative or whatever." But that's not how it works anymore. The people that are getting hired are getting hired because oh, they went to Yale Forestry School, or they, you know, I don't know, they worked. Uh, uh, fundraising for a university maybe or some other you know a hospital or nothing to do with the environment at all but they you know they know how to make money you know get money um so those are those are the kinds of things that are um changing the environmental movement a great deal you know like when the um when i was on the board of the mwa i think there were three employees then now there's over 25 well just think of how much more money you have to raise with 25 employees but it's just three and um so the uh uh that that changes you you don't want to risk alienating people so the bigger you get usually and the center and wild earth guardians and a few others are the exception to this but usually the bigger you get uh, you get more conservative because you don't want to alienate a potential funder you don't want to alienate the membership you need to grow your membership and so forth so it depends. I, I know at Restore, where I am, we don't have much money, but but we also have a policy, you know, when we've talked about getting new board members or, or staff or whatever, is the first criteria is they have to support protecting 
wildlands in the main woods, and that has to be the most important criteria criteria for hiring or joining the board. And if if that isn't your number one priority, then we don't we don't want you there. And uh, and thankfully, we've still been able to accomplish some things, and we'd accomplish more if we had more money. I'm sure of that. But uh, but then I think we might be making too many compromises that when we say we accomplish more. We, we may be doing less for protection, ultimately. So, a lot of times, too, you're out there challenging. You don't... It's hard to measure your success. In other words, uh, a lot of these smaller groups that I consider good activist groups, they may not have a lot of positive things to, say, you know, to show, but they prevented a lot of bad things from happening. And a good example I would use is the Alliance for the Wild Rockies, that has appealed all kinds of timber sales. They haven't won all of them, but they appealed a lot of them, and they've won some to the betterment of grizzly habitat, to the betterment of wildlands, and so forth. They have done more to protect wildlands in the northern Rockies than these groups with 25 people working for them, in my view. And uh, But a lot of that's hard to measure. You know, how do you measure that the place wasn't logged? You know, uh, really, in terms, you know, you're not accounting, whereas if you're one of these bigger groups and you have collaborative and they get 10,000 acres of wilderness and they give up 100,000 acres to be logged, they'll brag about the 10,000 acres and ignore the 100,000 they gave up. You know, the Alliance for the Wild Rockies doesn't have any 10,000 acres, but maybe they protect 100,000 acres so it could still be wilderness in the future. But it doesn't, you know, it's hard to add that up. Yeah. That's a juggernaut of a business model out there right now. And yeah, I'm always rooting for the grassroots folks and the activists out there and keep doing what you love and looking after the places you love. And yeah, in the face of great obstacles and we'll just keep moving forward, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I were ED of an organization that was doing the hiring and I haven't been the ED of anything really, uh, but I've been on the board of a, quite a few groups. But I would, my criteria would be, you know, how much do they know about the issue and how passionate are they about it? You know, even if they don't know a whole lot, if they're passionate, like this woman I know in, in New Mexico, they'll learn what they need to learn. They will, because of the passion. So I look for the passion, and that, that is the more important criteria. And then I think the other things fall into place. And uh, if I were ED, I would, you know, I'd try to hire somebody who's passionate. And then, you know, I look for somebody who's going to do the work, even if you weren't paying them. And then, great, if I can get some money to them so they can keep doing the work that they're doing, that's what I hope. And like I said, have loose sidebars, because most creative people don't like to be reined in much. And that is the death of a lot of creative people is is the folks that try to control them too much. So you got to tolerate, and sometimes they're going to do things that are going to, you know, not be so great and, and once in a while. But uh, on the whole, uh, if you let them be creative, I think you get a lot more out of them, and they're happier, and you're going to be happier. That's how I would do it. Great. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. Anything else lingering you think of? Yeah, you know, the one other thing I might say about collaboratives is that there's a self-selection goes on in the sense that the people that go and work for the, quote, environmental groups on these collaboratives, there's a self-selection for the people that want to compromise to begin with. And and also I've seen, and I view this somewhat as a negative, they really want to be liked badly. And so they don't want to upset anybody. 
because uh, they actually don't have a lot of self-confidence. So they don't stick up for the um, the wildlands or the trees or the wildlife or whatever because um, they want to be part of this group. They don't want to be seen as outside. And it's hard. I mean, I understand that. I mean, if you go to a meeting, you're always the guy that's, you know, sort of uh, bringing up the issues that nobody else wants to talk about. And when you leave the meeting, you know, nobody walks out with you talking to you. Cause, yeah, that's the metaphorical wilderness. Yeah. You're you're out on your own, you know, and and it's totally natural to want to be liked and to be part of the group. That's mm-hmm. we're social animals. So, mm-hmm. so what happens over time though is that uh, anybody who is not willing to uh, accept the role of being uh, part of the, the the greater mindset of the worldview of the group either gets tired of going to these meetings all the time and doesn't go anymore, or they're sort of pushed out. So what that happens is you get a you know the quote environmentalists on the group that don't think very differently from the timber guys on the group or the forest service people on the group or the ORV people on the group or whoever the other you know categories are and that's one more thing about collaborators too you got to remember um, in general they they try to say they're being representative of all these different interests so you have the ORV representative the horse packer representative the outfitter representative I'm just making up things the yeah, rancher the again. yeah uh and 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 people are assigned to fill those perspectives the county commissioners etc and but in truth most of those people all have the same worldview they think, you know, we need to manage the world. We need to get the lumber out or get the grass grazed. We've got to control the predators and the wildfires and so forth. So they're all on the same viewpoint, even if they got a different title. You know, you know, the, the county commissioner thinks the same as the timber guy. Uh, the uh, the uh, ORV guy has basically the same attitudes as the uh, uh, the forester for the Forest Service and so forth. So they're they're really, they all have different titles, but they... They don't actually have different views, so that's one of the things that you got to be aware of with collaboratives. They're they're not a there's not they're they're shown they're supposed to be a diversity of perspectives, but in reality, there's really one perspective for the most part. Usually, yeah, it's sort of pre-selected for right. before going. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.